Hello lovely Buddhas. In this episode, I continue with the New Human Revolution Volume 1, reading pages 22 to 41. Returning to the inn where he was staying, Masaki immediately began to chant Daimoku. Come morning, he thought, we will welcome President Yamamoto to the United States. Sensei will take his first step towards worldwide kosenrufu here in Hawaii. I must do my utmost to ensure that his overseas guidance trip is a success. Masaki put even more power into his chanting of Daimoku. While chanting, he recalled each of the bitter struggles he had been through since coming to America as a foreign student in May 3 years before. 5 days after leaving Japan and arriving in Los Angeles in America, the land of his dreams, he had received word that his father had died. He was filled with grief. 4 days later in the morning, he received a letter of encouragement from Shinichi which he read again and again. Shinichi wrote, "My dear Masaki, how sad you must be, how grief-stricken. Yet I am praying that you will be true to yourself as you live up to your mission, overcome every sadness and difficulty you face and grow to become a courageous leader." As Masaki read the letter, tears flowed. They were not tears of grief, however, but tears of deep passion that brought forth a fresh surge of determination. Masaki arose resolutely from the realm of suffering and embarked boldly on a course of arduous study. To earn money for tuition, he held down various part-time jobs, including working as an attendant at a bowling alley and a dishwasher. At the same time, he applied himself earnestly to his studies. Then, one year later, He heard the news that Josei Toda, the second Sokagakai president, had died. To Masaki, who was fighting a lone battle in a foreign country, Toda's death was tantamount to losing his spiritual pillar. On that occasion too, it was another letter of encouragement from Shinichi that roused him from the depths of suffering. That time, Shinichi had written, "Don't forget your true mission. Don't forget to develop into a world leader." Shinichi's fervent appeal enabled him to realize that the time had come for Toda's disciples to stand up and begin to strive in earnest for Kosen Rufu. Two years later, on May 3, 1960, Shinichi Yamamoto became the third president of the Soka Gakkai. Masaki and the other members in the United States were overjoyed at the news. Shortly thereafter, Masaki received an airmail letter from Shinichi's wife, Mineko. saying that the new president and a few others were planning to visit America in the near future. The letter also contained a message from Shinichi asking if it would be possible for Masaki to return to Japan for a while to take part in the planning for the visit. From the way the message was worded, it was obvious that Shinichi was concerned about the financial burden such a trip to Japan might impose on Masaki. Masaki was delighted and at the same time grateful. In early September, Naga Yasu Masaki ebulliently set foot upon the soil of his beloved Japan. His heart resounded with anticipation when he thought of meeting again after so long President Yamamoto, who had been a constant source of encouragement for him. Trying to control his excitement, he headed directly for the Soka Gakkai headquarters from the airport. "I've just returned," he said in high spirits when he saw Shinichi Yamamoto at the headquarters. Hi, welcome back," said Shinichi. 
The moment he heard Shinichi's warm and familiar voice, Masaki's eyes filled with tears. To the red-eyed Masaki, Shinichi said, I thought you would grow bigger when you went to America, but instead you seem to have shrunk. The jacket Masaki was wearing was far too big for him, making his already small frame look even smaller. Masaki looked down at his sleeves, which covered his hands except for his fingers, and said bashfully, Actually, I borrowed this jacket from my brother-in-law who lives in America. It's a little too big. With only part-time jobs to sustain him, Masaki could not afford to buy himself a new suit. I see, said Shinichi. It must be hard for you to make ends meet. Were you able to buy a gift or souvenir for your mother? Yes, I bought her a suit. You don't have a suit for yourself, but you bought clothes for your mother. How admirable. Well, then, I'll buy you a suit. As a gift, Shinichi bought Masaki a new suit. The fit was perfect and the colour, too, became him. Masaki's delight and appreciation soared all the more. The planning for the first overseas guidance tour began amidst an atmosphere of joy. Masaki told everything he knew about conditions in America to Yasushi Muto and the other staff of the newly established Overseas Affairs Section at the Soka Gakai headquarters and conferred with them in detail about the schedule. The majority of the Soka Gakai members living in America were women, so Masaki proposed that a women's division leader be included in the visiting party. Masaki stayed in Japan for about 10 days and, upon returning to the United States, busied himself preparing to receive the president and his party. Then he went to Honolulu to await the arrival of Shinichi and the others. After visiting the members to inform them of the change in schedule, Nagayasu Masaki retired to his room at the inn for the night. Before 5 a.m. the next morning, he was up again and off to the airport. Around dawn, the members began to arrive at the airport a few at a time. Each carried a lei and wore a shiny, round Sokagakai lapel pin in the shape of a flying crane. More than 200 members had gathered by the agreed-upon time at of 6 a.m. Most were meeting one another for the first time, and all were heartened to learn that there were so many friends of Kosun Rufu living in Hawaii. As they introduced themselves, conversations sprang up among them. Some took photographs to commemorate the occasion. Though 7 a.m. came and went, the lights had still not come on at the airline service counters, and no clerks or airline employees could be seen. Masaki started to grow more and more anxious. A clerk finally appeared at the Pan American Airlines counter, and Masaki inquired in English about the JAL Flight 800, which was scheduled to arrive at 7.55 a.m. With a puzzled expression, the clerk replied that no flights were scheduled to arrive at that time, but that if Masaki was referring to JAL 800, it had already arrived the night before. Masaki was aghast. He felt the blood drain from his face. He asked Yumiko Nagata to show him again the airmail letter she had received from Japan the day before. It distinctly stated the arrival time as 7.55 on the morning of October 2nd. How could such a thing happen, thought Masaki. If the president and his party had already arrived, all he could do now was phone their hotel. But he realized that he had not been told where they would be staying. Masaki found a phone book and began to call all the major hotels in the area. 
Each time, however, he was told that there were no guests registered under the names he mentioned. Hiroto Hirata, a second-generation Japanese-American who had a thorough knowledge of Hawaii, then spoke up. There's a small hotel called the Kaimana, which is frequently used by Japanese visitors, he began. I really don't think the president would be staying there, but why don't we just check to make sure? Hirata looked up the phone number, called the hotel and learned that the president and his party were indeed staying there. With that, everyone piled into several cars and headed for the Kaimana Hotel. When Masaki thought of how President Yamamoto and the others must have felt arriving in Hawaii with no one to greet them, he wanted to cry, yet more than that, he was numb with shock. The emerald ocean glowed through the morning mist that spread across the horizon as silver waves lapped quietly on the white sand. Early that morning, Shinichi Yamamoto stepped outside alone. There was a patio that looked out over the ocean, which was directly behind the hotel. Shinichi had not been able to sleep much that night. He had gone to bed at around 3 a.m., but woke up after dozing off for only an hour or two. This was not only because of the time difference. Nagayasu Masaki, who had been scheduled to meet them, had not shown up, and Shinichi could not help worrying about his well-being. With the first light of dawn outside his window, Shinichi got up and did gongyo, chanting Daimoku for Masaki's safety. Filled also with a heartfelt desire to realize Kosunrufu in Hawaii, Shinichi prayed earnestly, as if to permeate the entire island with his Daimoku. He then went out to take a walk along the beach. The endless succession of white crested waves quietly breaking on the shoreline painted a poetic scene. Turning to look back, he saw a vast expanse of palm trees, beyond which rose the summit of Diamond Head, bathed in the golden light of the morning sun. Shinichi recalled the day in the summer of 1954, six years earlier, when he had stood with his mentor, Josai Toda, on the beach of Toda's childhood home of Atsuta village. As they watched the brilliant red sunset over the Japan Sea, Toda had said, Shinichi, I will build a solid foundation for Kosunrufu in Japan, but you will pave the way for Kosunrufu throughout the world. I will create the blueprint. You will make it a reality. Shinichi had engraved those words in the depths of his life. Since that day, he ragged his brains over how to open the way for the worldwide spread of Nichiren Daishonen's Buddhism. Needless to say, the propagation of Buddhism begins with heart-to-heart exchange and mutual understanding among individuals. However, to allow people outside of Japan who had no relationship to Nichiren Daishonen's Buddhism to correctly understand it and the Soka Gakkai, Shinichi thought that written materials would be necessary to coherently introduce the organization's philosophy and movement. After his inauguration as president, he immediately set about producing an introductory English-language publication for an overseas audience. Concrete plans towards this end were implemented under the supervision of Youth Division Chief Aisuke Akizuki, who was also the managing editor of Sekyo Shimbun and Joji Kanda, who taught English at a university. At first, they had planned to publish translated excerpts from the Soka Gakkai's Shakubuku Kyoten, Propagation Handbook, but when they considered the obvious differences between Japan and other countries in culture and local custom, 
not to mention in people's ways of thinking, they found it necessary to begin writing suitable material from scratch. The book that would introduce the Soka Gakkai to the English-speaking world was being drafted first in Japanese. Upon the completion of that text, an exam was held in mid-July to select translators from among members who had ability in English. The 31 people who took the exam ranged from grey-haired senior citizens to young students. From among them, eight were selected. However, these eight were still a long way from being experienced translators. The translation of this introductory book got underway towards the end of July. The most difficult challenge for the translation team was how to render certain Buddhist terminology into English. There were no precedents for terms like Kuon Ganjo, time without beginning or the infinite past, Ichinen Sanzen, a single life moment possesses 3000 realms, or Jikai Gogu, the mutual possession of the ten worlds in any English dictionary. Yet, these terms needed to be translated in a way that would allow those with no prior knowledge of Buddhism to understand them. Members of the group had given up their summer vacations and thrown themselves feverishly into the task of translation, pondering seriously over which words to use. As a result of their tireless effort, the printing of the introductory book titled The Soka Gakkai was finished just before Shinichi Yamamoto and the others were to depart on their overseas journey. In mid-July, Shinichi had also established the Overseas Affairs section within the Soka Gakkai headquarters. Its purpose was to serve as a liaison centre to coordinate and facilitate communications among the growing number of members who lived overseas. Behind the scenes, Shinichi had been making steady efforts to open the way for the dawn of worldwide Kosen Rifu. Now, as he stood alone on the quiet beach of Waikiki, he ruminated deeply over the fact that he was now taking the first step towards global propagation. These thoughts, however, were soon replaced by concern. Nagayasu Masaki's whereabouts weighed most heavily on his mind. Because Masaki had not been heard from at all, it was possible that he might have met with an accident. Or perhaps some grave personal matter had arisen. Also, why had the young women's division member Yumiko Nagata failed to appear? Shinichi was deeply worried. If Masaki remained missing, he would also have to consider what to do about finding a guide and interpreter for the group. Shinichi returned to his room and waited for the leaders who were accompanying him to awaken. At around 8.30, Shinichi and his companions had breakfast together on the hotel patio. It was a simple menu of coffee, toast and eggs, but the ocean view made their dining a pleasure. Just then, they heard a flurry of footsteps. About 30 people were running straight for the patio area. Sensei, a voice cried out from the head of the approaching group. It was Nagayasu Masaki. Nagayasu Masaki came running up, out of breath. At his side was Yumiko Nagata. Oh, Masaki, said Shinichi. Masaki stood beside Shinichi's table and bowed, his shoulders heaving as he laboured to catch his breath. Sensei, I'm terribly sorry about yesterday. What on earth happened to you? We were all worried. As soon as Shinichi had said this, his fellow travellers each glared stonily at Masaki. 
I'm sorry, Masaki replied. Actually, we received a message from the headquarters saying that your arrival had been changed to this morning. Please look at this. With a tense expression, Masaki showed Shinichi the letter sent by the headquarters overseas affairs section informing them of the change. After he read it, Shinichi laughed and said jovially, Well, with this, it couldn't be helped. I thought you had gone off somewhere, you know, but I'm glad that you brought this with you. You'd have been in trouble if you hadn't, because everyone was pretty upset. Shinichi passed the letter around to the other members of his party. But how could such a mistake have happened? demanded Kiyoshi Jujo angrily. Unless we investigate the cause, the same thing might happen again. Was it a miscalculation by the overseas affairs section? Someone probably forgot about the time difference, suggested Shinichi, because Japanese people don't often travel outside Japan. Laughter arose among his companions. Shinichi's words ended the discussion. Nevertheless, he had understood Jujo's point. When a problem occurs, it is only natural to search thoroughly for the cause and take steps to ensure that it will not happen again. However, this problem had been resolved for the time being and they could at last meet with the Hawaiian members. Rather than continue to dwell on the error, Shinichi wanted to spend as much time as possible encouraging the members and thanking them for their efforts. Besides, what made him happiest was seeing that Masaki was safe. Actually, the mistake had been caused by a simple typographical error on the part of the travel agency that had arranged the trip. Several days before the group's departure, the travel agency had sent a schedule listing the flight number and the name of the hotel where the party was to stay. As a final confirmation, the schedule, however, had contained the error. The staff of the Overseas Affairs section, upon noticing the new arrival time, had hurriedly sent off a letter to the Hawaiian members to inform them of the change. Shinichi turned towards the members, who stood crowded into one end of the patio and beckoned to them, saying, Thank you so much. Everyone, please come on over. Most appeared nervous, perhaps because they were meeting Shinichi, their president, for the first time. But... As soon as Shinichi spoke to them, their tense expressions relaxed. Thank you very much for taking the trouble to come here, Shinichi said. I understand that you went to the airport early this morning to meet us and so many of you are still here now. Mr. Masaki and Miss Nagata have really worked hard. A smile finally appeared on Masaki's face. The members all moved towards Shinichi and, one after another, placed the lace they had brought around his neck. Soon, his face was buried under a mound of lace. Not just me, protested Shinichi. Please give them to the others too. Lay after lay was placed around the necks of the other leaders who accompanied him. Shinichi passed out to the members some nori that he had brought to eat with his breakfast. It's not much, he said, but let's eat it together. This nori was taken from the sea near Omori, Tokyo, the town where I was born and raised. Practically all the members were of Japanese origin and they nostalgically savoured the distinctly Japanese flavour. Through this encounter with Shinichi, they also experienced their first real taste of the warmth of the Soka family. Without resuming his meal, Shinichi engaged the members in lively and cheerful conversation, putting his new friends instantly at ease. He asked one of the leaders accompanying him to bring some fukusa from his room. On each was printed the Japanese calligraphy for joy, kanki, 
written in Shinichi's hand in white characters against a purple background. Even the smallest child presented received a fukusa. Shinichi wanted to encourage every one of the members who had gone to the airport to greet him so early that morning. Next, a commemorative photo was taken. Each person's joy-filled expression caught on film. Just then, Tony Harada, the young man who had met them at the airport the night before, arrived. Shinichi presented him with a medallion that had been cast to commemorate his inauguration as the third Soka Gakkai president. Thank you all very much, Shinichi said to the members. I'll see you again at the discussion meeting this afternoon. He warmly saw them off as they walked buoyantly from the hotel. Taking advantage of the time available to them before the discussion meeting, Shinichi and his companions rented a car and took a tour of the island of Oahu. Together, they wanted to get acquainted with this land that was so new to them. Before leaving the hotel, Shinichi Yamamoto asked the member who was acting as their guide, how should we dress for the today's discussion meeting? In the interest of creating an atmosphere of friendly discussion, Shinichi wanted to do all he could to blend in harmoniously with the local members. Well, let me see. Here, the women wear mumus and men wear aloha shirts. So I think it would be best to wear just a shirt without a jacket, their guide answered. What color shirt would be best? Shinichi asked. Since the aloha shirts are all lightly little flashy, I think a light blue shirt would be fine. Blue? I didn't bring a blue shirt. Well, I think I'll just wear a white one. Let's all dress casually for the meeting. Miss Kiyohara, why don't you wear a mumu? suggested Shinichi. A mumu? echoed Katsu Kiyohara with a dubious look. She turned to their guide and asked in a low tone, What's a mumu? They are what the women who were just here were wearing. Those loose-fitting outfits. Weren't they some sort of nightgown? No. Women in Hawaii generally wear mumus wherever they go. Oh, really? You know, when they were here, I was thinking about telling them, today is going to be a historic discussion meeting, so you'd certainly better not come dressed like that. Please wear some proper attire. With a laugh, Shinichi said, Miss Kiyohara, this is in Japan, you know. Hawaii has its own traditions and customs, and we should respect them. The climate and culture here are different from Japan. If Soka Gakkai members overseas had to wear the same kind of clothes and hairstyles as their counterparts in Japan, then no one would want to practice this faith. It would be like the wartime Japanese National Defense Women's Association, which demanded rigid conformity from its members. Nothing is written in the Gosho about such matters, and because they are not related to the essential doctrines of Buddhism, they are best left to the common sense and natural taste of the people in each area. Especially in a discussion meeting like the one we'll be attending today, our main focus is to listen carefully to everyone's problems, concerns and doubts and to offer them clear-cut guidance and encouragement that will leave them feeling confident and reassured. To that end, it is essential to create an open and friendly atmosphere in which people can talk about whatever is on their minds. Therefore, everyone should be allowed to dress comfortably and we too should follow suit. On hearing Shinichi's words, Katsu Kiyohara reflected upon how shallow her thinking had been. Yes, I see, said Katsu Kiyohara. I'm glad I didn't tell them anything foolish. But Sensei, I didn't bring anything at all like a mumu. I know you didn't. You look fine just as you are. The rest of them laughed. Jujo then said, 
Differences in manners and customs are certainly a big problem. Sensei, I think that the way we sit on our knees to do gongyo would be quite uncomfortable for foreigners, particularly since most American houses have wooden floors. But we can't change the way we do gongyo, can we? Shinichi responded without hesitation. Yes, we can. I think that we'll naturally have to consider the possibility that gongyo can be done while sitting in a chair. For people who aren't accustomed to it, sitting on their knees could be as painful as torture. Under such circumstances, it would be impossible to derive any joy from doing gongyo. That is why there is a concept in Buddhism known as Zuiho Bini, meaning that so long as one does not deviate from the essential teachings of the Daishonin's Buddhism, that is, faith in the Gohonzon, it is fine to make the formalities of Buddhism confirm with the manners and customs of each area and with the conventions of the times. I see, said Jujo. Considering the future, we'll have to become more flexible in our thinking. My biggest fear, continued Shinichi, is that leaders might fall into the trap of thinking that the way things are done in Japan is absolute and that members in other parts of the world must do exactly the same. This would be like forcing people in other countries to wear traditional Japanese clothing. If leaders come to believe that such ways are what constitute correct faith, they will then be turning Buddhism into some ex something extremely narrow and rigid. Should this happen, then instead of Buddhism, we'll have Japanism. After all, the Daishonin's Buddhism exists not only for the Japanese. It is a religion for all people the world over. Since the day Josei Toda had entrusted him with the mission of worldwide Kosunrufu, Shinichi had considered the various problems he was likely to face overseas and had weighed each one carefully. Naturally, he had delved thoroughly into the question of how to deal with the differences in custom and tradition that existed between Japan and other areas of the world. Already painted vividly in his heart was a grand and elaborate vision of the future of global Kosunrufu, yet not one person was aware of this. Rows of palm trees could be seen swaying in the breeze through the window of the station wagon that carried Shinichi Yamamoto and his companions as they left downtown Honolulu and drove towards the National Cemetery of the Pacific. The air blowing in through the open window was fresh with the scent of greenery. The National Cemetery is situated in the crater of a small extinct volcanic hill known as the Punch Bowl. Brightly coloured flowers had been placed upon the grave markers set deep into the lush green lawn, creating a vivid and beautiful contrast. Those who lost their lives in World War II are buried in this cemetery, their guide informed them. During the war, a unit of Japanese-American soldiers from Hawaii was formed. It played a key role on the front lines of the war in Italy. Soldiers from that unit are buried here too. After strolling around the cemetery grounds, listening to the guide's explanation, Shinichi and the others stopped to chant Daimoku three times and pray for those who were sacrificed in the war. With only nine participants, it was a tiny memorial service. Yet their offering of Daimoku for the deceased was infused with a profound prayer for peace. The car carrying Shinichi and his comra comrades then headed back to the city. After driving for a while, they saw a stretch of ocean spreading out before them like a giant silver mirror. It was Pearl Harbor. On the morning of December 7, 1941, a force of 183 Japanese warplanes, including both fighters and bombers, 
launched a surprise attack on the U.S. military facilities in Pearl Harbor and the American warships docked there, thus sparking the beginning of a tragic war in the Pacific. The success of the attack was telegraphed by Japanese forces under the codename Tora Tora Tora. The beginning of the war and this early victory brought a surge of excitement to Japan. For Hawaiian residents of Japanese heritage, however, it marked the start of a bitter destiny. Since the first Japanese immigrants arrived in Hawaii in 1868, Japanese descendants had labored strenuously to win the trust within Hawaiian society. The aerial attack, however, destroyed that trust in a single stroke. All the Hawaiian islands were immediately placed under martial law and persons of Japanese ancestry were designated as enemy aliens. A name list of more than 160 individuals who were deemed potentially dangerous had already been prepared by the military in anticipation of war with Japan, and these people were immediately placed under arrest on the day of the attack. Internment camps were set up on the islands for the containment of designated individuals of Japanese ancestry. Later, many were relocated to similar camps on the American mainland. Many Americans who were enraged by Japan's sneak attack came to view all people of Japanese ancestry as hostile Japanese. So pervasive was this feeling that some in the military took the uncompromising stance that all persons of Japanese ancestry should be interned. That, my lovely Buddhas, brings us to the end of this reading. I hope you have an amazing day.